Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much again for uh, taking time uh, to come out tonight. And uh, for those who are uh, watching online, and I'm hearing there's quite a few that are doing that, I'm really thankful for that, too. And uh, glad that you're going to be able to uh, go back online and go back through it and, you know, stop and take it back and stop. And believe me, I, I understand that it's, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant sometimes, but uh, there's a lot of material uh, that, that we need to cover. And so I'm looking forward to tonight. I'm really looking forward to the Q&A. Of course, I, I was telling uh, Joey Montague last night, the truth about me is a Q&A is kind of like Q a a a a a a a a so I'll try to do better about shortening the A a little bit uh, because I think tonight is probably going uh, to generate some questions. So I want to just uh, begin tonight by inviting you uh, to pray with me. Oh, Abba Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for the beautiful day that you've given us here in Kansas City. Thank you for your goodness shown to us in so many ways. Father, I pray tonight that your presence would be here tonight. Lord, I pray that by the presence of the Holy Spirit, you would give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation in Christ Jesus, that you would give us a sense of your tangible presence, because it's so relevant, Father, to what we're talking about tonight. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have promised to be wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you would be there. And so we welcome you. We welcome the Holy Spirit. We welcome the angelic watchers who surround us and, and protect us. And, Father, we just give you praise for what you're going to do in our hearts tonight. I pray this in Yeshua's holy name. Amen. So last night, we, uh, you know what, Greg, could you turn that off? It, I'm kind of freezing. I'm, I appreciate you doing it because sometimes I, but I'm, I might have to call you back and I'm a little high maintenance, you know, so, uh, so last night, because I felt like I was having to yell over that, uh, last night we studied the kingdom in the context of past, present, but tonight we're going to do future. And if you remember, we, we did that and I really, this, this is not just a preacher stick. I really believe this. I do not believe that you can look at the kingdom of God that is established by the God who was and is and is to come and pigeonhole it in one moment of time. What you will see and what we're going to see tonight is that there is one thing that is consistent in all three of those uh, manifestations of his kingdom, and uh, that is going to be his presence. And we're going to be looking at that tonight. Uh, we identified the kingdom uh, past and present as the drawn near kingdom because Yeshua, you know, that's what he began to preach, that he had brought the kingdom near. And when he was talking about Mahut HaShemayim, the, the Hebrew word for the kingdom of heaven, he, he really wasn't talking about the future form of the kingdom. Most of the time he was referring to the manifestation that would be present in the lives of believers who because of the nearness of the kingdom and because of their faith, had the opportunity to experience his power. And as Jesus went throughout the Galilee, then in Judea, I mean, people were seeing incredible things. And those things were framed by Yeshua as the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. So 
if that's the kingdom we're in, then maybe that's the, that, that should tell us how we should begin living our lives, that we're not just look, sitting around waiting to be in his presence because he already, he told the disciples, it's better for me to go so that the comforter can come and dwell within you. And so we're so thankful. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, hey, church, we ought to be just as excited about the kingdom we're in now as the kingdom that's coming. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to the kingdom that's coming. But right now, we're in the kingdom that has drawn near. And that opens up so much potential for us uh, to do some amazing things by the power of the Spirit. So we were looking at the kingdom that has drawn near. But tonight, we're going to start moving in the direction of talking about the kingdom that is drawing near. All right? Now, to get your blood uh, boiling a little bit, I'm going to start off with a provocative statement, and hopefully you won't turn me off. I believe 100% in predestination. Now, why is that provocative? Because whole denominations split on that issue. I believe it 100%. And I fully understand those are fighting words. So before you turn me off, make sure, let me show you what I mean by what I believe in predestination. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I, I was sitting in a congregation not, not long ago and this passage was preached and the, the spirit was just all over me. I was irritated because I felt like it was unintentionally being misrepresented. But it's a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 8, beginning verse 28. And we know that God causes all things uh, to work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and those uh, whom he predestined, he also called, and those these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. And wow, we've been fighting over that one ever since. I want to try to clarify this for you, and this will be a good thing for your home Bible groups to talk about and chew on. But please understand that Paul does not say that some people are predestined to be saved or predestined to be lost. What Paul describes is what God has purposed, what God has predetermined would be done for those who would believe. Meaning, before the foundation of the world, God knew who, would, you know, he may know who and who is not going to come and accept him, but he already has a plan in place for those who accept Jesus, who those who respond to the word of God, he has predetermined there are some things that are going to be done for you. There are some things that you are going to experience. He said that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Do you remember, well, if you weren't there, but do you remember in the Bible when Cain killed Abel, and then you come to Genesis chapter 5, and Genesis chapter 5 kind of lists the names 
The, the, the next 10 generations that are born from Adam, which, by the way, is an amazing study. If you go back and you look at the Hebrew root words of those names and you put those names in a sentence, it says something like, uh, the great God shall come down teaching, that his, teaching the despairing that his death will bring them rest or something. It's like the gospel spelled out in the names of those generations. But it, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 5. And I want you to see something because there is a difference that is brought out in that passage. And tonight I don't have all of my text in my notes, so I'm going to have to flip around here. Genesis chapter 5 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He made who? Adam in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness or image, according to the image, according to his image, and named him Seth. This is the lineage that's going to survive. The lineage of Cain is going to die. Now, I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. Adam is created in the image of God and is like unto the Son of God. Seth is the image of God's Son, Adam, and we are predestined, predetermined that when we come to the Lord, He is going to conform us, He's going to transform us into the image of the Son of God. You should be jumping right now. That is the coolest thing ever. As Seth was born in the image of Adam, we are going to be born, we are going to be transformed into the image of the second Adam. We're going to be, this, this is what he's going to do in you. This is the plan. And he says, man, you are pre, this is the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to restore the image of the holy in you. That's amazing. I'm going to conform you to the image of my perfect son. Why? So that the lineage of Adam can continue to live. He says those whom he conformed, he also called. What does that mean? Remember, we, we mentioned the book of Leviticus. The, the Hebrew name is Vayikra, meaning and he called. And the whole book of Leviticus, I love it, because it's about those people that he has called to serve him. And the, the, the Levites, when they encamped around the tabernacle, they camped closest to the Holy of Holies. They were the, clo the ones who were closest to the heart of God. He said, he's, you're going to be called. And what are you going to be called to? You're going to be called to holiness. And in that calling comes the promise, as Paul has revealed, that God is going to use you to fulfill his purpose. You're going to be called in the context of what he has already predetermined to do. Which means you're not going to fail if you stay in that plan. Number three, he says he also justified. And we've spent a lot of time this week talking about one word, righteousness. And, and justified's okay, but I wish our translations would be more literal and simply say what it is. He also declared righteous. Do you remember what we've been talking about, the passport to the kingdom? 
It's not that you go out and earn your way in and you get your passport stamped. It's that God gives you, he credits you with righteousness because as Abraham trusted him, we trust him. And God says, I recognize that you are in an act of righteousness. You're giving me your life. And so he gives us his righteousness. He declares us righteous. And righteousness is the manifestation of his presence in your life. Which means, if you're living your life and you're not even trying to not be selfish, something is seriously wrong. Now, when you are selfish and you get really upset with yourself and you just, that's, that's a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, that's not my image. That's yours. My image is not selfishness. My image is selflessness. My image is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. Then he says, he de- those he declared righteous, he also glorified. We are called to be transformed into the image of the Son of God, called to his holiness, declared righteousness, so that ultimately, like the Son who was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, we too would be glorified in Christ Jesus and Messiah Yeshua. And that's why Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, why am I going on about this? I thought we were talking about the kingdom. Because this is the kingdom plan. This is the plan for what God promises he predetermined his purpose to be, that he's going to raise up this family, he's going to raise up this lineage in the image of his son, and we are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom when we are glorified with Christ, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, when that happens. I've told you that uh, I've named the previous kingdom the draw near kingdom. Tonight we're talking about the kingdom that is drawing near, but I want to give you another little maybe helpful memory thing so that you can separate the two. Right now I would say we are in the tell-all kingdom. Tell-all. Why would I say that? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, when they asked him, hey, Lord, what about the times and the seasons, the chronos and the kairos? What did Jesus say to them? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons of the future kingdom, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what do you do with that power? You go and you tell all. All right? Tonight, we're not going to talk about the tell all kingdom. We're going to talk, I'm going to introduce you to a Greek word, telos. It's the telos kingdom that we're talking about. When the disciples asked Jesus about the restoration of the kingdom, Jesus says it's not for you to know the chronos or the kairos, the times and the seasons, but you'll receive power. Now notice that he doesn't correct them and say, there is no future kingdom. I'm done with Israel. It's not happening. Listen, I, I was guilty of standing up and in my early days talking about those poor, dumb disciples. Now, I just would, would you please just, tonight is a night we really have to think kind of logically. Do we really believe, can we really make the case 
that the disciples, that these 12 men spent 40 days with the risen, resurrected Messiah. Let me ask you a question. When you're sitting across from a risen Messiah, does your mind wander? Do you miss anything? I'm pretty sure you're freaked out the whole time and you are laser focused on what he's saying. And what does the Bible say? It says that he spent 40 days talking about one thing, the kingdom of God. And then preachers like me stood up and responded to the question that they asked. Oh, those silly, dumb disciples. They just don't get it. No, I didn't get it. it it's, it, it's ludicrous to assume that they could miss what Jesus was saying at that level. And at the moment they asked that question, Jesus had every opportunity to clarify, men, when I come back, we're going somewhere else. And he didn't do it. And you understand, you need to understand that if there is no kingdom, Jesus lied to his disciples. He left them believing something that wasn't true. Are we willing to process that? I can't do that. So we want to talk tonight about that telos kingdom. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Where are you, Timothy? Let me read verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, because there's a word we need to clarify. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. That word there, the goal of our teaching... Uh, is this Greek word, telos. Now, here's the context. Paul's telling Timothy, there are men that are teaching false things, and normally when that's happening, they are doing it for their own benefit. It's not hard to figure out who, who's out there uh, trying to profiteer off the gospel. It's, it's, it's pretty easy. And so Paul is setting up a contrast between what he's telling Timothy to do and what they're doing because we're not, they're not going to be a part of that nonsense. He doesn't want Timothy to be a part of that nonsense. And he wants to clarify the goal of what we're doing, the telos of what we're doing, is love from a pure heart. The, the end of what we're doing, the thing that we're moving towards, is love from a pure heart. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 10, a verse that is many, many times misunderstood. I think I should use my phone. 
It's faster. <laughs> My, these pages don't want to flip for me. Romans 10, verse 4. Paul writes, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I've spent my life hearing people say, the law is dead and done away with. And it says it right there. For Christ is the end, except for one thing. That's not what that verse says. Now, that doesn't mean I think that you're under the law. I don't. But I'm not going to stand around and, and pretend that something is true when it's not. That's not what that verse says. Because the word is, for Christ is the telos. Uh, of the law. It's the thing the law was trying to remember last night when I talked about the Torah of righteousness, instructions in righteousness. Paul is saying Christ was the goal of all of those laws. Christ was the goal of all of that instruction in righteousness. It was to bring you to a greater knowledge and understanding of what God was looking for. And remember, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word telos is the goal. It, it's, I always use the illustration of the parent that stays up all night on December 24th putting together a bicycle. Now, when, when the box comes with all of the parts, do they have a bicycle? Can you dump it out on the floor and ride it? No. But once all the pieces are correctly formed together and come together, then you have telos. Now you have fullness. Now you have the designer of that bike's ultimate purpose at hand. He wanted, or she wanted, whoever designed that bike, designed it so that once it came together, a person could ride it and enjoy it. That's telos. And this is what God has predestined to happen in us, to bring us to the fullness of why and how he created us in the first place. We weren't created to have this. Remember when I was talking about how much I, I, I don't really like the term sin nature because I don't want to believe that sin is natural. Sin is not natural. Sin is the unnatural. If I'm created in the image of God and I'm being recreated in, in the image of the Son, sin is the abnormal, it's the non-natural. It may be the nature of my fallen flesh, but it's not the telos. And Yeshua has come, Jesus has come, to put all the pieces in place to do everything so that someday I can come back to the full condition that God had already planned for me from before the foundation of the world. That's telos. And that's the kingdom that's coming that telos is the resurrection of the saints, glorified and brought to the end, the goal of God's will from the very beginning. Now, all of the times that we've talked about of the kingdom have had some form or manifestation of the presence of the king. In Eden, the Bible says that he would come down in the cool of the day and he would walk with Adam and Eve. When he called Israel out of Egypt, 
met them in the wilderness or at the foot of the mountain. He then came and placed his tent in their midst. And had they remained faithful once they, moved, once they crossed in the promised land, he still, you know, when Solomon prayed, Lord, are you really going to stay here? I mean, are you really going to dwell in a place made with human hands? He says, yeah. And he lights the altar, and his glory fills the Holy of Holies. And then they experience the Son of God tabernacling, dwelling among them, preparing us for the return to his presence. Tonight we're going to talk about a, a word that is very, very important. And you know, it's kind of weird when you look back on your life and you discover that maybe things were happening uh, providentially in your life that at the time you didn't really uh, see as providential. But I remember when Greg and I were going to Bible college. Again, it just grieves my soul. God rest Cincinnati Bible College soul. May she rest in peace. Um, but we took Greek. And there's nothing funnier than watching a bunch of young men take Greek. Some of the, so you'd go into some, because there, there, there were always those guys that were fanatics. I remember going in to certain friends' dorm room, and they would have entire parsing guides. Their wall would be covered with Greek parsing guide, words. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but at the end of that Greek class, you had to do a paper on a particular Greek word, and you had to kind of show how that word had been used in the text of Scripture. And lo and behold, years ago, without realizing what the focus of my ministry would someday be, I was, I don't remember if we were assigned the word or if we had to just choose the word ourselves, but I ended up with this word, parousia. Parousia is the Greek word that means that we translate as coming. And you often see it in verses that are related to the second coming of Christ. But I remember all the way back then studying it and realizing that wasn't a very accurate translation. But it didn't register with me. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 17. I want to show you some other verses where this word that we translate as the coming of the Lord, how this word is actually used. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus. And the verse goes on, but the context is Paul is, is so excited about the arrival of these two men. Well, let me ask you a question. When you have family that are coming for the holidays, well, this may not work. Um, are you excited about the journey they take to get to you? Or are you excited about the time you're going to be able to spend in their presence when they arrive, the aftermath of their coming? Now, I'm sure there's times when you wish they'd just kind of drive by and do a little wave. Like, yeah, we all have those family members, okay? But Paul is saying, he, he, and he uses this word parousia, I am so, I'm rejoicing over the coming. And he's not just talking about the action of, the, of them coming. He's talking about the presence. What, what, what not, not presence like Christmas gifts, but their presence with him. 
Interesting. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. This one's kind of funny because uh, the bottom line is Paul acknowledges that he's kind of getting backstabbed. You know, the way some people treat him when he's there is not exactly the way they treat him when he's away. And they have an opinion of him when he's there and when he's not there. And they say, for they say, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Well, that's just backstabbing. You want to take a guess which word is parousia? Personal presence. How come we didn't say, how come we didn't translate that there, his coming is unimpressive? Because that's not what the word means. That's not, you can use the word coming if you understand that what you're actually talking about is the presence. Turn with me to Philippians 2.12. Paul writes, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not, only, uh, not as in my presence only, but, much, but not much more in my absence, work out your salvation and trembling. Now he writes a sentence where he uses the word parousia and contrast, contrast the presence, how they behave in, when he's there in his presence, and in his Absence. Can it be any clearer what this word means? And by the way, there's more. This word helps us understand that the second coming is not a swoop and go. I don't know what you think about when you think about the second coming. But you really need to start adjusting your thinking to the second presence. Because church, he's not just coming, he's staying. And that is the promise of the kingdom that is drawing near. And so we have to take time, and I, I, I hope you trust me because I'm, I'm trying to use the word of God to define the word of God. And, and hopefully if you've written down those passages, you can go back and check me out. Make sure that I'm saying something right. And by the way, by the end of the night, if you disagree with what I've said, you can still call me and take me out to lunch and buy me a steak. I, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm that big. You know, I'll, I'll let you do that. Because we're going to get into some things that are very divisive as we take a look at a passage that we should turn to, to discuss the kingdom. But instead, we fight about the rapture. And I've, I, I want to just share my heart with you as we get into this tonight. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to execute it. We're going to go line by line. And try to be as honest and limited as we possibly can with not saying more than what each verse says. There are a lot of people out there that believe that there's a very difficult period of time that occurs prior to the return of the Messiah. I agree with them. We'll talk about some of those things tomorrow night.
But from this passage, a, a teaching has developed that the Lord will take the church out of the world before that period of difficulty. Now, let me just say, as far as man-made ideas are, that's a great one. I'm all for it. And I wish I could find it. When I, I told you that I went to Israel in 1990 and, and I just had my mind just blown as I saw all of the living proof of biblical prophecy and I remember the teacher saying, you know, if the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or you end up with nonsense. And I thought that was great. And when I went and started looking at the kingdom, some verses we're going to look at tomorrow night, I thought, it's right there in black and white. I mean, I have to do all sorts of gymnastics to try to de deny what I'm reading. And, and so I couldn't deny it. But when I started looking for the plain sense of this pre-tribulation rapture that he was saying is in the scripture, I couldn't find it. And this is the arch verse. This is the foundational verse of that position. So let me just apologize to you. We shouldn't have to look at this verse to deal with that subject because it's about the kingdom. It's about the presence but we have this elephant in the room, and we, gotta, we have to deal with it. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18. This is what we're going to do tonight, and then we're going to be done, and we'll take your Q&As, your pitchfork, your torches, whatever, however you want to handle it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. One verse at a time. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Stop. Don't, don't look at another verse. Focus only on the verse we have read. What is the context of the concern that Paul is addressing? They are worried that the dead in Christ have missed the second coming. Now, they're not worried that, oh, man, we missed, the, you know, we missed the light show. They're worried that the dead in Christ died before he could come and bring the telos. They're, they're worried that they have missed the inheritance. That, that's what... And so Paul doesn't want them to grieve with like the rest of people who have no hope because the dead have, we have, they have the hope. Verse 14. Now, before we move on, just again, notice the issue that Paul is now addressing is what happens to the dead when Christ returns. Next verse. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Stop. How can Jesus bring the dead with him if they have not yet been resurrected? The Bible is not unclear on this subject. The body returns to the dust of the earth from whence it came. But the spirit of man goes to its creator. To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. 
The fact that Jesus rose again means so will the dead. And so Paul is addressing uh, this, this, this concern of what happens if uh, someone is dead when Christ returns. And so look at verse 15, because he's going to keep trying to help them understand this. He says, for this we say to you, and, and notice the authority he places on it. By the word of the Lord. Now, let me just stop right there. By the time we get through this, you're either going to agree with me or not agree with me. But what I want you to see is that Paul is not giving. This, this is not one of those places where we're juggling the differing opinions of maybe the Pharisees' view of the, end, of the resurrection or the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots or the Christians. Or... This is the word of the Lord. That matters. So he's not giving us his opinion. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming, until the presence of the Lord, we will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. Again, stop. Take note of the comfort that Paul is giving. Not only will Christ bring the dead with him, uh, and what that means is he's going he's to return with their spirits. We have many pictures of this in Revelation uh, of the souls that are with him. It says, um, sorry, I lost my place here. Um, not only will Christ bring the dead with him, uh, they will rise before those who are still alive. There's, there's a chronology here that really is important to pay attention to. Which means the, the people who are alive, the believers, we don't go anywhere. We don't get nothing until the rest of the body of Messiah is resurrected and standing beside us. You see that? That's, I'm, by the word of the Lord, that's what he's saying. And this means the resurrection must occur before there can be a catching up. All right? Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first action of the second presence of Christ is the resurrection. Do you see that? That's the first action. The Lord descends with a shout. The shout is described as the voice of the archangel and the trumpet, call, trumpet of God. Judaism refers to this as the awakening blast of God's trumpet. Then the dead in Christ rise first. Well, who are they rising ahead of? Verse 17 answers. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord. Notice the emphasis is being in the presence of, of, of Christ, so we will be with the Lord. Now take note, the alive are the saints who are alive at the time of Christ's return. Now listen, I have no idea how long the resurrection is going to take. So I don't really want to, you know, imply that we're going to be standing around being impatient. 
Come on, come on, get out of that grave. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a pretty quick scenario. But we're not going to sit there and, you know, form a committee to complain that it's taking too long. Verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Go back to where we started. What was the concern? That Christ will return and the people who have died will miss being in his presence. That's the concern. They will miss the blessed hope. And Paul is saying, by the word of the Lord, that's not true. By the word of the Lord. And so to prove his point, he gives us a chronology of what happens at the parousia of the Lord. You see, the context that Paul is addressing is not two separate events, but the two conditions of the believers at the return of the Lord, those who have died and those who are alive. He describes one, and I'm going to call this a noun-named event. What is a noun? A person, place, or thing. It's something that names something. And the, and the word here, parousia, is the noun, the, the, the event of his second presence. When all of the elect who have died are then joined to their bodies, and those who are still alive have endured to the end. Now, now let me just say, you're saying, well, Brent, what do you mean we can teach the kingdom? Well, let me ask you a question. If what happens after the return of Christ is that we just go to heaven to become disembodied spirit beings, why resurrect the dead? You, you see, they're, 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 both sides of, of, there's a lot of misinformation on, in both camps. I know we love to sing, I'll fly away. And, and we will. But he's coming to stay. And wherever he's at, that's where I want to be. I want to be in his presence. This is one event dealing with two conditions. And it is violence to the text to attempt to insert a secondary event that is not described. You see, the rapture, the catching up, is the second action of the second coming. The first action is what? The resurrection of the dead. The second action is the collective catching up of the saints. Remember I told you there are more places where we can see what the word presence, the parousia, really means. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Because I want to prove my point from the Word of God. Peter writes, 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming, parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the mountain. Did you, did you hear it? Were Peter, was Peter one of the shepherds that went to Bethlehem? No. What? How can he be described? When we made known to you the power and parousia of our Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, they weren't there when he came as a baby. They're talking about the, his presence and, and, and everything that takes place because he's there. In this verse, Perusia has nothing to do with arriving on the mountain, but what took place on the mountain when they were there in his presence. That is the thing that has defined the kingdom, past, present, and future. It is always the kingdom. It's his presence. So what is, what is this word rapture? The word rapture is a word that comes from the, is really, it's a Latin word from raptus, which means the catching up. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. In, in uh, the Greek, it's harpazo, uh, and it's translated in Latin as raptus. So what does this word mean? It means to catch away or to remove forcibly. So what is the term harpazo, raptus, or rapture describing? It's simply describing the action of catching up the resurrected and alive saints to be brought into the cloud of his presence where they will be glorified. And those whom he predestined, he called, and he justified, and he glorified. Now, don't ask me to explain exactly what that looks like. But I think it's going to be good. The question is not, is there a rapture or a catching up? The answer is a yes. The issue is, does it happen before the resurrection? And it can't. The first action of Christ's return is the dead in Christ. The second action is those who are alive. So Paul says that we will be with the Lord forever. So does that mean he takes them to heaven? Again, no. Why would you resurrect someone in a physical body and then take them to what, you know, in, in my mind, I, I believe heaven is a spiritual place. I don't believe that means it's not, that it's, that it's, we have a hard time with that word spiritual, don't we? That we think it has no substance. But when John receives the revelation, as I was saying last night, he sees living beings positioned around the throne. He doesn't see ghosts. He sees 24 elders surrounding the throne. They're not disembodied spirits. Being spiritual doesn't mean not having a body. Jesus brought those people back because the resurrection matters. 
Years ago, I was watching a television show, which is always such beneficial time spent. Um, and it was about these two guys who had decided that they had discovered the tomb of Jesus in Israel. Do you remember this? And they went down into a town called Talpiot, and, and they, they dug down in there. And after the thing was over, and it was complete nonsense, but after it was over, they had panel discussions. First, they did some scientists and journalists, and there was a question posed to the two archaeologists. And, of course, they're not believers. Would it matter if you found the tomb and the bones of Jesus? And their answer just floored me. Because as much as I want to believe that they, they answered the way they did because they, weren't un, they, they were unbelievers, I know believers who think the same thing. Their answer was no. Why should it? He still can be honored and venerated. Years ago when I was in Indiana, I was at a minister's meeting. And we were talking about what our churches in the town we were serving were, were going to do on Resurrection Sunday. And uh, after sharing some things, there was one Presbyterian minister, young guy, who was obviously agitated and started calling into question some of the things we were going to do. And there was an older, more conservative Presbyterian minister from another church in the same meeting. And bless his heart, he finally looked at this gentleman and said, let me ask you a question. Do you or do you not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the man looked at him and said, well, it depends. What do you mean by resurrection? Dead, alive. There's no other definition. But there are people, if you're wondering why I'm being so insistent on this, it is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those things that is under attack. People say, well, we can, we can still enjoy the moral code of Christianity. We can still, you know, I mean, if he just resurrected in the spirit, but that's not what happened. He showed up and said, Thomas, put your fingers in my hand and my side. The bodily resurrection is a foundational doctrine of Christianity that we cannot give away. And the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that guarantees you're coming out of that tomb. Now, I know we all want glorified bodies, and we all have a whole list of things that we hope that means. <laughs> Something around like, you know, maybe when I was 17, you know, give me that body. Paul's not done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Excuse me, Second Thessalonians, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 5. He goes on. Now as to the times and the epics, Kronos and Kairos. Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you should underline this next line, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Let me stop right there. How many of you have grown up being told, you can't know anything about the coming of Jesus. He's coming like a thief in the night. Did you hear what Paul just said? 
I mean, don't argue with me. Paul just said, if you're a believer, it is not supposed to happen as a thief in the night for you. Because we are of the day. We're supposed to be. That doesn't necessarily mean you know the day or the hour, but it should not catch us unaware. Now, I want you to notice something that happens here. The terminology of the thief in the night, as I've already said, only applies to those in darkness. But Paul also does something else. He uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, interchangeably with the parousia or the coming of Christ. And he applies the terminology, thief in the night, to both. Why? Because it's the same event. He does it again in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You know, when I grew up, and I would read that, I thought, how could anybody be talked into believing that the second coming had already happened. I just thought that was, I'm stunned. But do you know that in Christianity today, there's a whole group of so-called theologians and scholars that believe just that. I sat at a table one day. I'm sorry, I'm going to get all excited. Tanya will tell you, when I get all excited, I get a little twangy. You know, I get a little oaky, you know, so I'll try to slow down. But I sat with a Bible college professor from a Christian church And he tried to convince me that Jesus came back in 70 A.D. Really? Well, glorification is really not what I expected. Are you kidding me? You have to take away every description that God gives us about the return, about the kingdom, and you have to toss it away. Tomorrow night, we'll talk about the kingdom, and I've got a good friend, his young man, his dad, he and his dad were arguing about the nature of the kingdom, whether it was now or coming, whether it was physical or spiritual, and he got so frustrated with his dad, he he took him to the window, and he opened the window, and he said, Dad, if this is the kingdom of God, something's wrong. He was not entirely right. He was not entirely wrong. This is the kingdom of God. We are a manifestation of the presence of the Lord. We are a part of the kingdom that has, because it's drawn near, but there's also a kingdom drawing near. Amen? And notice that Paul starts warning people. Don't let people deceive you. In in that verse, Paul refers to the parousia of Christ, and then in verse 2, he refers to the same event as the day of the Lord. Why Why do we take time to talk about this? Because knowing these things, I believe, will, well, you know what Jesus said, the truth will set you free, it will protect you. We need to understand the real definition of the parousia of Christ is his presence Because it not only defines the action of the resurrection, it also sets us up to understand why there's going to be a physical kingdom of physically resurrected people. And we'll get into that tomorrow night. 
The parallel use of parousia of Christ in the day of the Lord is significant because it helps us see this isn't supposed to be catching us off guard. Another verse, and we're almost done. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, Let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is a false messiah. Notice Paul, not Brent, says it is deception. If someone comes to you and tells you that the day of the Lord can occur, and what's the day of the Lord parallel to? The second presence. That the day of the Lord can occur before the apostasy. This, folks, this is why I don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Paul says it's deception for someone to tell you that that event is going to happen before the revelation of the false messiah. We need to guard our hearts. A little logic goes a long way. If the resurrection cannot occur until the full presence of Yeshua, and the rapture cannot occur until after the resurrection, and the man of lawlessness must be revealed before the full second presence of the Lord, how is it there are so many people in Christianity that teach they're going to be raptured and, and or resurrected before the tribulation? Again, as, ma as a man-made idea, pretty good. I mean, I, we can form a committee. We can, you know, we can run it up there and see if he you know, would like to chew on it a little bit and maybe change some things. It's not here. I'd like for it to be here. I'm not overly fond of suffering. I'm not overly fond of people hating me. I'd love for it to be here, but it's not. One last scripture. When I first started my journey studying Bible prophecy, and I came to this topic, I told the Lord, if he ever gave me a verse, showed me a verse, that gave a specific chronology, I would stand on that chronology. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Pay attention to the chronology. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And they had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So please take note of some things. 
I know of no prophecy teacher who does not accept that the terminology used in this passage refers to the martyrdom of the saints at the end of days. It it is not necessarily limited to that period you call the tribulation because we've seen it happening overseas in our lifetime, haven't we? We've seen it in Afghanistan. We've seen it across the Middle East. This passage declares that the souls that are murdered for Christ during the tribulation, because it connects it to the beast, come to life at the first resurrection. Well, if they're going to be martyred during the tribulation, how can the rapture resurrection have already occurred? Do you understand what I'm saying? If they're going to come to life and reign with Christ at the first resurrection, how are they going to be martyred if they're raptured and taken out off the planet before that series period of time comes to be? My friends, if that is so, the rapture, how can the, I say it again, how can the rapture, which cannot happen before the re- resurrection, occur before the tribulation? I want to say one thing emphatically. He's coming to stay. He is coming to establish his kingdom. His presence is the hallmark of his kingdom. The parousia of the king is about his presence when he returns. And it we don't have to grieve like men who have no hope that if, if we die before he returns, we won't have a place in the kingdom. Now, tomorrow night, we're going to talk about who's in the kingdom and some of those things because there are people that look at verses and they try to, you know, limit it. But be at peace. He is coming. Amen? And when he comes, of course, he can do whatever he wants. But as I try to be as honest and objective as I possibly can, like I said, When I found the evidence of the kingdom, I aligned my understanding. I aligned with what I could find. But when I went looking for this pre-tribulation rapture, I could not find it. Does that rob me of hope? Absolutely not. Why? Because we're in the drawn near kingdom where he has placed his presence within us. And greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. I don't live in fear of the tribulation, and I don't believe that Christians should spend their time trying to be so focused on the things that are described coming in that season that they, they spend all of their time you know, sending emails. And I always tell people, please do not send me an email about some company that has the technology to put a chip in your hand. I, I already believe. Stop fussing. Stop fretting. Start being the manifestation of righteousness because that is what this world is going to need. If there is a season of darkness and great deception, the world is going to need the body of Christ to be the manifestation of his righteousness and power. Amen? Come quickly, Lord Jesus.
I'm sure that you've got a few questions, and so tonight what I want to do is I'm going to, as I said earlier, if you need to leave, that's fine. Uh, those of you who can, can hang, great. Um, I'm going to try to move around with the microphone so we can capture the question with the microphone, okay? So, anybody have any questions at all? Yeah, Joe, let me, why don't you stand up? That'll make it easier. Uh, so you mentioned um, the passage, 2 Peter 1, 18. Is that talking about at all the trans, transfer, transfiguration or Jesus' baptism where it talks about? No, good good question, Joe. Um, it, it, it's talking about when they're on the mountain of tr transfiguration. Yeah, that's because it says when we were on the mountain, uh, the, the voice from heaven could, you know, maybe confuse you and you may, because that happened at his baptism too. But that moment was when they were on the mountain with him, and they had literally, you know, one of the uh, things that took place on that mountain that kind of showed their anticipation of him staying, do you remember what they did? They built tabernacles. They thought they were going to be there a while. Good question. Good clarification. Other questions? You'll probably get into this maybe tomorrow night, but I've always been confused about that 24 elders. Um, you know, um, who are they? Why do they get that privileged seat? And is that an eternal 24 elders that are there forever in his throne, casting their crowns? Is this something that uh, some people on this earth are destined to be or already are? Or are these special humans that came out of the Old Testament? I mean, I've, I've read a lot of these things, too. Do you know Russian? Any Russian? Well, I do, actually. Well, <laughs> Yanis I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me give you a, a little, because I, I just kind of touched on it last night when I was talking about the watch. The beautiful thing about the throne of God, and let me just tell you when, when I kind of saw this, it terrified me. I wasn't sure I was supposed to know it. But if you read what happens there, we know that every day is made up of 20, a 24-hour period, right? And what, so what happens is the thing, when you start studying the throne of God, what you find out is that it is always in motion. It is always moving, all right? Wheels within wheels. And so when they... I, I always couldn't figure out, well, if... The four living creatures never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Well, are, are, are the 24 elders throwing their crown and going, oh, okay. Stop. <laughs> I mean, it kind of creates a, 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 a humorous scene where they throw it down, they pick it up, and they throw it down, they pick it up. But remember what I told you. It is the blueprint of the world you live in. 24 hours a day. What is a What is a crown? In, in uh, Hebrew, the word is karen. Okay, that's where we get our word crown. And the best illustration of it I can give you is, think of the Statue of Liberty. Can, can, you, can you envision the crown? Those are rays of light. Every hour of every day has a degree of light. And it's like this structure, our 24-hour day constantly in motion is the manifestation of his throne. The 24 elders, 
I don't know who they are. Are they eternal beings that, are, that he created? Are they resurrected beings? Because John is seeing them, at the very least, they have to be from times past. But my, my gut feeling is that these are, you know, just like the four living beings, I believe that these may be 24 angelic beings. I, you know, and I, I wouldn't die on that hill. You know, they, they may be elders, you know, patriarchs from the past. You know, because, you know, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about this great cloud of witnesses. You know, is, is, is that a reference to those who are watching 24 hours a day? But when I saw that structure, I, I, I was just so humbled because I realized our existence, the very north, south, east, and west, time and measurement, it's all established as an image of his throne. And that just blew my mind. So I don't know who they are, but I know that what it pictures is nothing but amazing. Now, by, one last thing. Kronos and Kairos. What does Jesus say to the disciples? It's not for you to know, Kronos and Kairos. What does Paul say? I don't need to write anything to you about Kronos and Kairos. The phrase comes up over and over again. The times and the seasons. Talk to you about the divinely appointed times of the Lord. His, his throne is his divine calendar. And so there are some things that we, you know, he, he makes some markers that come around every year, just like the 24 hours come around every day. And Satan hates that throne. Why? Because it's a timepiece and it's winding down on his existence. And he knows it. And when he has to appear before God on that throne, he knows that throne is a testimony. What does it say in Revelation? Because he knew his time was short. So, a little freebie there. Yeah, Bob. Thanks, Brent. Uh, that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 where it talks about the, the resurrected will be caught up mm-hmm. in the clouds and with the Lord in the air. You, you used a phrase somewhere in talking about that, that the cloud of his presence. Are you feeling like that's actually going up into the sky somewhere or what do you think that phrase Very means? good question. I really believe, you know, how he talked about, I was trying to connect for you this idea that those that he called justified, he glorified. When you think of the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, what do you think of? It's the Shekinah glory of God, the Shekinah. And the Shekinah, the glory of God's presence, is represented many, many times as a cloud. All right? And so the cloud that I think we're being caught up into, yes, it could be in the air, but, but I, think the, I don't think it's just the, the clouds created by natural process. I think it's the divine Shekinah glory cloud. And that, as we are taken in there, we are translated. Whatever, whatever this body has to shed, you know, to become immortal, to become eternal with him, whatever, whatever has to happen, it happens when we are brought into his presence in the Shekinah glory of God? It's a very good question. 
I, this is just in keeping with that same thing. I, when I hear that, um, I just think, so are we taken up there and then the earth is destroyed by fire and then it's recreated and then we're lowered again? That, that's just... Yeah, there, I've read, I've read um, books and heard lectures by people who believe in the pre-trib rapture. And, and let, me do, let me just tell you, I, even though I stress the fact that the teaching is deception, right now in the body of Christ, there are way too many headhunters. All right, who want to throw around the word false prophet and false teacher. You know, men and women are going to make mistakes in interpretation, okay? And it's funny because you go on the li- online and you come across some of these headhunter, you know, self-appointed grand inquisitor, you know, that there's going to point out everybody else's, you know. If, if you want some fun tonight, you don't have anything to do, go home and Google Brent Avery false prophet. I taught this up in Michigan one time, Scott's church, and I irritated some poor guy, and he called this ministry, and that guy listened to my teachings, and what he was mad about was that I had taught what I had taught about the preacher rapture. But in the process of doing that, I also will use sometimes references from different uh, Jewish documents, and so I had, I had referenced as an illustration because they kind of give you some idea what the Jewish people thought about some of these things. And one of, them's, one of the sources that I quoted was a, a Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism, which I absolutely do not endorse. However, the Jewish mystics sometimes, if someone ever comes to you and says, nobody in Judaism ever saw the, the Godhead, they, they never saw the three-in-one. If you understand what Kabbalah teaches, you can say, excuse me, there's a quote in Kabbalah that says, how, you know, how can three be one? And it's talking about God. And it's, then it answers its own question. The only way that you can understand how three can be one is by the help of the Holy Spirit, by the help of heaven. And so I quoted that. And he went online and did this huge article about Kabbalah and witchcraft and made me the poster child as if I had been endorsing Kabbalah. Absolutely not. I was referencing it as an illustration from one vein of Jewish thought. Okay? That's it. So, what was the question? <laughs> um, so, anyway, you can go online, and I, I would listen to these guys, and that issue would come up. And the way they would handle it was they would start talking about, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the yo-yo rapture. You know, the yo-yo. Well, it's very, it's very easy to come up with kitschy little demeaning things like that to make it seem ludicrous. But I don't know exactly what being caught up into the glory of God means. I don't know how high we have to go, you know, but we're going to look at passages um, tomorrow night that uh, he keeps coming because his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So whatever happens, he keeps coming. And it's not a yo-yo. So what your, your speculation about the fire, I've had that same question because the Bible says that uh, the earth was destroyed with a flood, and it's, it's reserved for a destruction by fire. 
And maybe in the period that we are caught into the glory, maybe that is the, the, the time period of that cleansing, koshering, uh, purifying judgment of fire. I, I think it's as good a speculation as... I've never heard any other speculation that sounded better to me than that, um, but it's, it's just speculation. The only other... The only other perspective on that, that that I've heard is that perhaps the fire is after Satan is released from the bottomless pit because he turns the nations against God again and that that's when that might be but back to the point we don't know so I was wondering where the thousand years fit in to the chronology we talked about tonight. Okay, so what I'm saying is when you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and you hear about it being the second coming and you, you frame the second coming as, and, and maybe you grew up in, in an environment where you didn't, it wasn't represented this way, and if not, that's great. But in my mind, when I was a kid, Jesus was going to come, he's going to swoop us all up, and then he's going to destroy the earth. And, and, and the best way that I could imagine it was like if you go out and you get a dried old dirt, dirt clod and you just start going like that till eventually there's nothing left. And that's what I believed. I, I believed that he was going to completely destroy the earth. But the Bible says that he destroyed the earth with the flood. So what are you sitting on? Did, did destroy in that context mean the complete annihilation of existence? No. And so I have no reason to believe that the destruction by fire is going to uh, take this planet and make it no more. I believe the Lord returns. We're caught up into the glory cloud. He, we then return uh, to the earth with him, with him as he finishes out the final battles. And then... And, and by the way, folks, this all happens in real time and real space. We love the Steven Spielberg movie version, that you know that twinkling of an eye thing where we think everything happens just being like instantly. It actually doesn't. And there are some very specific passages in the scripture that there, there is a process to the, you know, his return, and you know, and then we're but once he is returned and goes out and fights against the nations, he establishes the kingdom. Another reason why we may be off the planet, and we'll look at this as jumping ahead, but it is obvious from the description of what happens to the planet, there is going to be catastrophic, catastrophic changes in the topography. And we'll talk a bit more about that. I mean, we're talking who knows what's going to happen to the tectonic plates and all that kind of stuff, but the scripture makes it really clear it, the earth is going to be like a Rubik's Cube. God's going to mess, I mean, he's really change things up. And I believe he establishes that millennial reign, that thousand-year reign. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. But that's when I think that happens. And then Greg was referencing that after that thousand years, there are some other things that take place. And sometimes it's difficult when you're reading prophecy because um, every December we sing you know, joy to the world. And if you go back and you look at the verse that it's taken from, 
It's not talking about his birth. It's talking about his second coming. So sometimes a verse can cover the entire span of his life and ministry, and, but it's condensed. But I do believe now. What I didn't believe growing up was that, he was, that there was going to be that thousand-year reign. I now believe 100% that he's coming back to rule and reign for a thousand years. This earth will have its Sabbath day. By the way, this is, you have to know, this is the scariest type of Q&A you can possibly have because any honest Bible prophecy teacher will tell you the things that we, we can come across being really, well, I'm 100% sure about this, but for everything I'm 100% sure about, there's a whole truckload behind me of things that I'm like, oh, please don't ask about that. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember, I don't remember the um, scripture but when it's talking about the apostasy and the person actually sitting on the throne of God, do you believe that is just a way of saying that, or is that physically going to happen? Well, obviously, no human being is going to ascend into the heavenly reality. And remember, the earth is a shadow or an image of heaven. What you're getting into there is some of the prophecies about the rebuilding of the temple. And that what it's talking about, what I believe it's talking about, is that he will go in to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And let me, let me, let me back away from what I just said. That, that's not correct. There are people who will just absolutely declare the temple is going to be rebuilt. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says that when you see the abomination that causes, uh, the abomination that causes desolation, standing in the holy place. And, and remember, we're a couple thousand years. We're a bunch of Gentile, you know, we're a bunch of mutts. And we're way disconnected from some of that ancient temple terminology. And there are times when terms are used in the New Testament that are actually very specific that we misapply. And so when you read what it says about the holy place, we immediately assume that that means the entire temple structure, the building of the temple, building has to be in place. What has to be in place for the, for the, for the man of lawlessness to be revealed is the altar because he puts an end to the evening and morning sacrifice. So you say, well, well you got to build the temple before you start the altar, right? No. We were in Jerusalem with a group one time, uh, had a group of uh, leaders, and we went to the Temple Mount Institute, the people that were all about getting ready to rebuild the temple. And I don't know why this happened, but somehow this guy, the head of the Temple Mount faithful, uh, Rabbi Chaim Richman, got a call from our land agency telling them a bunch of VIPs were there. He needed to come take us through the Temple Institute. You know, so I'm like, all right, yeah, that's right, that's right. VIPs, I don't know what it means, but yeah. And so here's this guy who knows more about what they're doing behind the scenes to get ready. And so we went into a Q&A, and I said, well, I have a question. Do you, whenever Israel takes or gets part of the Temple Mount, and I've always said, I don't know whether it's going to happen by bullet or by ballot. I don't know if it's a political thing or if it's a military thing. I just know it's going to be a thing. 
However it happens, when they begin the process, I said, do you inaugurate the altar service, the evening and morning altar service, and then build the temple building? You know, all the walls that separate the outer court from the inner court and the holy of holies and all that. Do you, do you, do you start the altar and then build the temple? Or do you build, you know, like the Western mindset where you have the big grand opening and everything is built, you know, come one, come all, and now, now we're going to light the altar. And he laughed at me. He said, oh, I thought you were going to ask a difficult question. <laughs> well, I thought, thought I was, I, you know. He said, we light the altar. Because the minute that altar goes operational on the Temple Mount, it becomes the holy place. Today, when you go through the Temple Institute, the last thing that you do is they have a little propaganda movie to show you. And as soon as that movie is over, I always have my groups turn and look at a painting, big, huge painting that's behind them. And it's a portrait, it's, it's a painting of the process of rebuilding the temple. And guess what it shows? It shows the evening and morning sacrifice and the altar operational and the construction of the building going on behind them. Can I say one more thing about the temple? A lot of Christians are not going to know what to do when they see that happening. The only sacrifices that I believe they will actually accomplish are the evening and morning sacrifices. Because in order to accommodate like Passover sacrifices and, and tabernacle sacrifices, you would, have to have, you would have to have the full temple operational. The amount of blood that would be shed if you were suddenly trying to, to offer a lamb, you know, for the... You would have to have the full structure, the drainage, the facility. Everything would have to be ready for that. I don't think the temple's going to get that far. Because first of all, I think even with the evening and morning sacrifices, the world, including Christianity, is going to go ballistic. But I want to give you this warning. The Bible says that when that happens, the world and the Antichrist join in calling for its cessation, for it to stop. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man who sets himself up and says he's God, I am not going to be in that man's amen corner. Do you understand? I may not understand what God is doing with it, but the best thing you can do if you don't understand is keep your mouth shut because you don't want to accidentally blaspheme something that God says has to happen. Again, it's just my opinion. I do not believe that all those other sacrifices will have time to begin. But the minute that altar goes operate, because one, I just don't think the world, I think the minute they, I think the minute they offer one lamb, the world's going to freak out. And, and, this, and it's because Christianity doesn't understand the altar. How, how many of you on the 4th of July send out invitations to your family and friends to come to your house and have a bloody ritual? The altar of God is like a big barbecue. That the animal is killed, it's cleaned, it's quartered. The, the priests get part of the meat to eat. You take part of the meat and you go home. It's just a big barbecue. 
It's, 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 not, it, it's not this grotesque, you know, pagan thing where you paint your face and you dance around. That is not the altar of God. This is the table of God. This is how he taught us to draw near. The, the Jewish people say, and I'm, I'm sorry, we're going. The Jewish people teach that in the absence of the altar, our table serves as the altar. And I thought, well, that's just crazy. That's, that's not right. And the Holy Spirit just flicked me in the heart and said, excuse me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he who hears my voice and opens the door, what did he say he will do? I will come in and I will sup with him. When you're talking about the altar, you're talking about the invitation to fellowship in the presence of God. You're not talking about some antiquated, old, horrible thing. You're talking about the tool that God taught us that he wants to fellowship with us at his table. Think about that this coming Sunday when you're taking the Lord's Supper. That's not a bloody ritual. That's communion with him. Like I said, Q A A A A. <laughs> All right, it's eight o'clock. So uh, if you need to leave, that's great. But uh, you want to you want to do a couple more? If there's any more? If there's other if questions, if you need to leave, feel okay. Any other questions? People have walked out on me before. I won't be offended. Anything else? All right. We'll Thank call you. It, guys. We'll call it good. Hope that you're able to uh, come back tomorrow night. If not, you can watch it online. So. Uh, Bless you guys. Thanks for being here tonight.